it a rescue attempt? Might be. Yes. Welcome to Film Fight Club. I'm Glenn Falcons, Lambert Falcon Screen, and we are joined by Sydney filmmaker Chris Evans. When you started that introduction, I thought that you were doing a love song dedications with Richard Mercer. Richard Mercer, I'm so sad that man is not doing it. We had for like 17 years that show. Yeah, The Love God. Did you know about the other night? Vic LaRusso. Really? Yeah, he was doing a charity auction, and he has the exact same temper in his voice for the traffic that he does when he re- speaks regularly. Right, right. So it's like, I'm in Clarissa, <laughs> and we're doing this auction here. It, 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 it was great. Probably he's practiced, the, or maybe, maybe he just turns it on because he's doing the auction, or maybe he's just spoken so many w- traffic reports that he just now communicates in that a, a register. I just worried who's watching the traffic. Obviously, 2SCR. It's 2SCR. We do traffic coverage. That's true. We do. We do. But not on Film Fight Club. Not on Film Fight Club. Yes, we do talk about, we do, if traffic, we, we could talk about traffic. It was a, actually, that wasn't a great movie at all. Um, speaking of a panel, we should introduce the rest of the panel, which is freelance writer and critic, Virat Nehru. I thought you guys forgot about me for a second. But yeah, I'm here as well. Speaking of, of traffic, uh, a little <laughs> known fact is that it's based on a British miniseries. As is the film Anna and the Apocalypse, which we're talking about later in the program. No, Glenn. <laughs> House of Cards, the new series with uh, yes, seven Glenn, but it's but it's not what I'm trying to segue to. Oh, I'm Pride and Prejudice, that beautiful, beautiful series in the '90s with Colin Firth and Jennifer L. Glenn, no. there was oh, a oh, novel no. by Austin before Colin Firth. <laughs> Bride, Bride, Bride and Pride. Okay, Bride and Prejudice from Amritsar to LA with with Ashwarya Rai. Is that what you're talking about? I've actually sat in the Grove in Bath and read Pride and Prejudice, which like I got a copy from the. Austin Center in Bath. It was a beautiful summer afternoon. It's much nicer there in summer than winter, I can tell you. That's very Glenn. Can I also say I'm glad that Virat remembers that there was a film called Bride and Prejudice because when <laughs> as soon as this show started, I thought, but hang on, that was the um, man who was it who directed it again? Gorinda Chadha, yes, who Garinda also Chada. did. Uh, Benedict Beckham. Beckham, yes, the only good film in her oeuvre of films yes, because she great. also did Victoria and and Abdul. Uh, oh man. no, 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 sorry, the the partition. Was was Victorian Abdul Stephen Frears? No, no, that was, that was Stephen Frears. Yes. What a Stephen but, Frears film! <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> Man. but she did Which another is a remake of the Mrs. Brown film from like the nineties. It's the exact same story, but with um, right. Billy Colony instead of. Anyway, the uh, Gurinder Chadha did the other Indian partition movie called Nineteen Forty Seven: The Partition, which was equally bad. Or even worse than Stephen Freer to Gary Nabdor. It sounds a lot worse than the recent Doctor Who episode, which was also about partition. Actually, I was surprised by how well they sort of managed to turn around it. Turn around it, yeah. and, but yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's decent. <laughs> um, yeah, I. What are we talking about? We were talking about. We were talking about Widows. Widows. Now that is based on a British biopic, like. Traffic. Biopic. Sorry, not a biopic. Oh, that'd be something. That would be something. No, a British miniseries like Traffic and like House of Cards. Yes, it is directed by Steve McQueen. From it the is 80s. in cinemas now. Was the 80s just the golden age of British TV miniseries? Basically, the, the original House of Cards is really, really good. And it has the young, well, you played Jane in um, Pride and Prejudice too. Right, right. In the first season. And, and it has a definitive ending, unlike the remake. I haven't and got there the, yet. The later season and how Badly, it spirals into. It wouldn't be Film Fight Club without Virat dropping unsolicited spoilers. Oh yeah, okay, that too. Um, I only watched the first. But no episode one cares. Of it's fine. Seven. Spoiler so ahead. I, I watched the first episode of season seven and I couldn't get into it. They jumped the shark twice. Season six, man. No season. There's no season seven. 
Oh, is it season six? I love you've got a preview of another thing that I don't know no, about. No, I, I don't have a preview of a House of Cards season that I don't plan on watching. So that is that is House of Cards. We are talking about Widows, the new film from Steve. Are McQueen. we, or are we just going to riff on about various <laughs> whatever thing floats to our head? Yeah, <laughs> we, we can do both. Actually, we're talking about two Stephen, Stephen McQueen and Stephen McPhail, if I'm not mistaken. No, no, John, John, his name John, John McPhail. Who's uh. the director who directed Apoc- I don't know, Apocalypse, we'll get which we'll get to later in the but program. But first, we Stick- might talk about Widows. <laughs> Widows. <laughs> which is based, which is, has a screenplay from Gillian Flynn, who wrote which is based on a novel and the. By Gillian Flynn? No, not by Gillian Flynn. Uh, I, no, so Gillian I, Flynn. No, she did not. It was Lorinda Penty. I'm going to get the exact name in a moment. Excuse me for not having no, it no, written Widow, down. Here. Widows was Widows written is, by Lorinda Pendence, but yeah, Gillian that, Flynn wrote Gone Girl. Thank you, Barack. Uh, yes. yes. No, Widows is written by Gillian Flynn. Uh, the, she wrote the screenplay, not the novel. Right. The Widows, you mean the miniseries? Widows is based on a <laughs> miniseries, which is based on a novel. This is so much fun. Yes. Uh, Widows is based on a miniseries based on the novel. Yes. Yes. So Gillian Flynn, who wrote, wrote the screenplay for what Widows, you, also the wrote the novel recent. Gone Girl. And the screenplay for Gone Girl. And the screenplay for Gone Girl, Which yes. was much better. And this is starring, though a much bigger cast, uh, Viola Davis, Michelle Rodriguez, Australia's own Elizabeth Debicki, alongside Jackie Weaver, and Lee Neeson, John Bernthal, Robert Duvall and Colin Farrell. So it's quite an eclectic, sprawling cast. And I think that's the way to describe it. It's a sprawling movie. It opens with a heist scene, which and a number of events ensue, which cause a number of the characters who aren't so familiar with heisting to engage on, to come together against their wills and engage in a heist. It is a drama thriller set in Chicago contemporaneously. It is latest from Steve McQueen, who gave us Shame and 12 Years a Slave. I think it's Billy's best film. And Hunger. Yeah, no... Oh, I haven't. Se- I, actually, I've not seen Hunger, but of the ones I've seen, Twelve Years a Slave. Hunger is, is not his best film. It's definitely Twelve Years a Slave. Fair, fair. Um, I, I, think I Shane, have spoken. I think Shame was underrated, but Twelve Years a Slave was much better. Yes, it was. Uh, Twelve Years a Slave is the only film by Steve McQueen I really like. I often find Steve McQueen to be a really cold and brutalist filmmaker who he really wants to assault the audience, and I think he's doing that in. Um, in Widows, as much as he always does. Uh, you know, this movie is all about whole, cold characters being dicks to each other, and it, it aims to shock the audience with, you know, assaultive, loud noises, flashes of violence. Um, and I sense a cruelty in this and in his approach in general. Uh, 12 Years a Slave is a film that's about such brutal subject matter that uh, in mining those depths that he often goes into, he, that he has been since his first film, Shame, um, you, it, I felt that there was empathy and raw humanity to it, but in this film, I, it just felt manipulative, and I didn't really care about any of the characters. I cared about two of the characters: the Elizabeth Debicki character <clears throat> and the Viola Davis characters. They were the only two characters I feel we at all got to know. The cast, there are characters who come in and drop out and leave. The Jackie Weaver character is in there at the beginning. I'm a little loath to make this comparison because I think it's a little harsh. But um, the room is famous for characters dropping in and out, and Jackie Weaver actually <laughs> played the mother in the Disaster Artist. Oh, yeah, the, yeah, and yeah. it's interesting that she, she plays, plays the mother, the mother in here, this. who just leaves at some point with no explanation. She's There's like, a couple of characters like she's that. She's like the reverse of the mother in. Um, in the room, though, because she's just here to say, you know, you're not good enough. Well, no, they actually had a similar conversation saying a man has to provide for oh, you. Right, yeah, yeah. true. Good so point. it's, good point. yeah, it was, and, the, and there were a few interesting characters. Daniel Kalua 
was very good. Mm. We didn't. Uh, some of the best sequences of the film involved him. There's one amazing. There's actually two great shots where the camera pans around a group of people. And that was quite engaging. An excellent scene in a bowling alley, which was very hard to watch. But he has some of the best bits in the film. But he's very underused, unlike but, like so many of the other actors. But he is used in the same sort of way I've been talking about Steve McQueen's approach in general before, to be like this menacing force of brute horror unleashed on characters at times designed to most shock the audience. I, I think, Len, you hit the nail on the head by saying, stylistically, I guess, there's something about this movie which is interesting but beyond that, this movie is so damn dull and lifeless and just cold and detached. Yes. And even though, and it just runs too long. It runs way too long. It, yeah. And doesn't understand what it's trying to do. In fact, for the majority of at least the first hour, I was struggling to get what the point of this movie was. Oh, it wallows in the second act so much. It could have got to that 30 minutes quicker. Absolutely. And it takes itself so goddamn seriously. It points in all these directions of... Like, this this is essentially... A heist thriller with some dumb plot holes, and you know that like a the big dumb plot hole will get to you later. Yeah, a bunch of big dumb plot holes, um, a bunch of plot elements that don't make that much sense if you think about them. But it wants to be a serious, speechifying political treatise on racial tensions and the state of uh, stalemate we've reached in politics and the disillusionment of our era. And man, I, I just. It's lifeless. I just don't want to be, you know, condescendingly ranted at by a film in this manner. At this point in time, to actually explain this to us. And yes, there is a bit <laughs> Multiple of irony times. in one of those All characters the in their explanation and how they express these values. But it literally stops mid-track, like quite a few other films do, to frustratingly say, this is what it's about. Yeah, the, Robert it's Duvall, so... the Robert Duvall scene does it well, but otherwise I don't think it was not very handled very well at all. Yeah, it's so transparently, this is an issue film, and we're speaking to the issues of today that it's like, man, this is just joyless and pretentious. I mean, look... How hard can it be just to make a good heist thriller? Just, you know, just make a fun, good heist thriller. If that's what your selling point is, and the film was marketed like that, that this is a heist thriller, the heist doesn't come in for the majority of the film, the runtime. We're just, there's so many MacGuffins, and we're just being wallowing in this kind of. I'm like, where is the heist? When is it actually going to happen? It's such a miserablest movie. Just like shame and hunger before it, man. But shame, I think, had. It was, I, think it was, I don't think you compare the films. I think Shame had a, quite a lot going for it. But this, in terms of the heist, half the heist, half the drama of them getting to the heist depends on them finding out where the heist has to be, which I don't know. It doesn't don't, make any I, sense. It doesn't make any sense. Essentially, they that trove of information is left for a character bar one crucial piece of information, which should have been left with the other The trove really of information detailed. has been left by a guy who's famous for being incredibly intricate in the instructions he creates, <laughs> and yet he forgot to list the place that they're rubbing that these instructions are for which included to, but he included the blueprints yeah and a lot of other details so and, it's not like and he was trying to cover it up photos and and you know those those elements led to some two of the best scenes of the film a scene where someone's confronted with the compromising photos and an excellent scene with Michelle Rodriguez and another person who similarly is suffering from grief which is a big That was the best scene of the film absolutely I, I'm not I'm not sure how this film treats grief actually cuz uh, with Dan Cleary's character and him being this agent of chaos and evil being unleashed onto other characters. This film, on one hand, is very cold and attached in how it sees violence towards characters. On the other hand, it somehow makes us want to root for certain people and their grief when this film doesn't give us any context of what 
this grief actually is doing to people and how this grief came about. And it's just shoehorned it's one le- narrative. It's, it's one-dimensional in that yeah. regard. And it's just shoehorned the narrative in this very quick super cuts. Like First Man. Yeah. It's really interesting. We have two films out now about grief which handle it in very cover grief in various different ways how people react to it. But it is similarly just one-dimensional in that we see, oh, grief causes you to act out. It doesn't, there's no, but there's many other, there's many dimensions to grief, but this is simply, all right, we have to go to an extreme and each character, while they're different characters, um, deals with that on a very similar plane. So you don't have different views on how grief is handled or internalized or anything else. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't actually buy anyone's grief in this film, except for that one scene you mentioned with Michelle Rodriguez. Such standout. Yeah. Which she's great. She's she's a, she's actually delivers a great performance. She doesn't have a lot to do here, though. She's that's true. Barely, but you know, one, to the other main yeah, but in that one scene, she holds her own. I think compared to almost ever anyone else in the film, Colin Farrell is superb. When oh, is yes, he not? So man? He's good at everything. He's so he's so good, and his character is, as we were discussing just before we recorded this, probably the most interesting thing in the film. Yeah, did um, Robert Duvall. Yes, he did. He yeah, absolutely that's did. Amazing, it's amazing to think of. But he did. He was Farrell, Farrell's a force of nature. His character is. <laughs> um, a, he's compared to JFK mockingly by his father. He's a politician who, as we see, is deeply involved in corruption and has, you know, um, some pretty uh, questionable moral choices on his record, but nonetheless cares about the community and wants to make a difference and wants to improve people's lives. He's not just the one dimensional, slimy, corrupt politician. And I found that really interesting. And I thought Colin Farrell found ways to depict that internal conflict and frustration within him. I, I really felt this movie worked better in trying to make a point about politics and political kind of adversarial nature of politics and this sort of uh, interesting to and fro between Colin Farrell's character and Jamal, the other, his opponent in politics. Oh, was, again, underused. So, yeah, once Jamal again, is I, interesting. I think that was, for me, the actual crux of the film. The heist element and Viola Davis and those character arcs were almost not that interesting. secondary and almost I feel like boring. it's, it's a, a bait and switch to get people to watch a film about politics and racial issues. They sell it as a heist film. But the film does have a bit of an identity crisis because it's clear that there's way more engagement in the miniseries um, or in the book right they, 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 every almost every character is almost entirely short changed we don't get to know anything about there's too it, much in this movie it's much. overstuffed and they're um, good actors in minor roles carrie coon has a walk basically a walk on role in this film she was in the center season two she was the star she was outstanding right. she was in adventures of the war she's had a great run she should have been much more of this movie there's another um aspect of this film that i found stupid that i can talk about without spoiling we were just mentioning jamal in the political angle before and i was saying it has a bit of a an identity crisis i think something that brings that out is how we have um daniel kaluuya as this agent of chaos going around um you know maiming and killing people um but this is he's doing this as a subcontractor for the, the main political rival of Colin Farrell going into a really hotly contested election. I think there's, ap- and this is meant to be, a, a presents itself as a realistic, serious political story. There's no way, even in a, a wild district like Chicago, that you could get away with as a politician with having a hitman running around doing your, your business, you know, like up to days before the election happens. There's no way that wouldn't get out and ruin you. So it, it yeah. ruins the credibility of this as a serious political thriller. And as a heist movie, it's weighed down by all this political speechifying and, and pretentiousness. So who is this film for? Yeah, it, it's not slick enough to be a heist movie. I mean, it's so middle brown. Yeah, man. And, and also, 
the sort of each character's motivation to be there themselves it, it's not clear and apart from Viola Davis's character which is clearly the only character that they want to focus on every other character gets shortchanged somehow Elizabeth Debicki is fantastic given what she's asked to do which seems limited but she brings about a lot more layers than her character actually allows for and actually acknowledge that uh, vodka is Polish not Russian <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that's actually true that, that, uh, I didn't know that and I thought I gained something out of this movie which I didn't think I was going to go into but uh but my problem with this movie is it's so incredibly it's trying to be stylistically so slick in how it's framed and there's some very inventive shots in how it you know the opening shot in cutting to and fro just mirrored later really two, well two very opposite sequences of beautiful shot beautiful opening uh, but the thing is there's so much style and almost no substance in this movie that just yeah, made me feel realize in the middle, I was just looking back and forth to Chris. Yeah, but it, it, it's just... going for it's actually it's going for a lot of substance. I think it's just that it's, it's weighing this film down. I, honest, I honestly wish it were a more sprightly, stylish film. Heist films live or die on that. It yeah, that. and it hangs on its cast way, way too much. And there was one great moment, one great actually comic moment in the middle of the heist, which I really appreciate. That was great. Twist. That was great. But and, the... but otherwise, no, it was lackluster entirely. Yeah. And the heist itself is based on a a premise that this heist could be pulled off by these characters that the film did not sell me on. In three days. Extremely unbelievable. It's about essentially about novices learning to pull off a heist that an expert heist team um, who've been spending, you know, all, all of them have many years in the field and the leader has 30 years, th- that this novice heist team could pull off their next mission, which is extremely intricate with two days of preparation. And it's okay if you're Absolutely watching, not. And it's okay if you're watching a film like Tower Heist, but it doesn't work in an yeah, action in, drama. In a, which is heavy, heavy, heavy on the drama and takes itself w- extremely seriously. Um, also on the, just on the Elizabeth B character, I actually think she was handled quite well. Um, related to her, there is the character, a male character, who she forms a relationship of sorts with throughout the film who is crucial to her character arc. I think we could have learned a lot more about their relationship, their dynamic, particularly about this character as well. I think we would have got that in a novel or even another adaptation of a miniseries. But as with so many aspects of the film, we were very, very shortchanged. Yeah. I'm, I'm once again, going back to Chris's point about how Steve McQueen seems to direct movies in a very cold, detached manner. Uh, this film, I, I'm not sure... I mean, it's trying to go for these emotional moments. It never, they never hits connect. the mark. And I think part of that is because it's so self-obsessed with how it wants to come across and show grief as this kind of outwardly reactive force of nature rather than a contemplative thing, which is so weirdly one-dimensional. And so that is Widows. It is in cinemas now. The next film we are talking about is a very different film, which we caught last week at the British Film Festival. It will be limited release from today. No, oh, so tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow Wednesday, yes. <laughs> November the 29th, which is Anna in the Apocalypse. As earlier mentioned, directed by John McPhail, it is starring Ella Hunt as Anna. It is set in a Welsh town where um, there's a bunch of, it's, there's a school, it's a small town. People live along as normally. Christmas, carols are all coming along. And one day the zombie apocalypse breaks. And, and it's a musical. And it's a musical. Um, I don't think, I've. this is one of the worst films I've seen this year. Yeah, I, I would say this is actually the worst. Oh, no, I think uh, I was going to say Mile 22 and Tower of Bright Day are still, for me, we'd, we'd be talking about this. Mile right. 22 was just above and beyond. I think this was worse than Tower of Bright Day. Yeah, clearly. Um, I, I think Widows was still worse than this. But No, still, no, yeah. no. There's no way. There's yeah. no way. There's no... Look, oh, I, I no, missed, I missed no. Peter Lou, and Virat said Peter Lou was worse than um, 
the worse than Anna and the Apocalypse, and okay. I absolutely do not believe that. The Mike but Lee film, really, bro? Really? There's, there's no way. Okay, like, the British film fans. Un- so- uh, sight unseen. There's absolutely no way. Anna and the Apocalypse is so amateur in every level, like, okay. and nothing, nothing. Nothing about this movie is good. <laughs> we, we should explain why we don't. The British really film like fans just had a very low bar, and it didn't even cross that bar this year. So I'm sorry, it just had a lot of bad films. Look, I think I think the key element of this film is that it's a one joke film. The one joke lasts exactly a minute. There is a funny sequence near the beginning, which is walking along, and zombies start appearing and causing havoc. And even mayhem. at that point, I was like, uh, you know, the the scene that you call good. It, I was looking over to a friend from Kino Cabaret who came over from Melbourne. Oh yeah, and just groaning and rolling out our eyes, like but because it, the choreography man. in that scene is completely yeah, misjudged. Okay. Nothing, nothing is good. In this film, it's a musical, but the the choreography is practically non-existent, and yet the the scenes drag on and on. So they beg for some actual choreography to liven things up. Um, it works. Oh, it never works. I was going to say it works for a little bit that they're going for. You know, we're not actually singers and okay. dancers, so there we just dance was, like, whoa, shaking right. our no, limbs there, around. There was one pre-zombie scene where they're all dancing in the classroom. That was quite well coordinated. It felt like one of the better episodes, or a, like an, Glee. Episode, an average episode of Glee. felt like Glee. Um, but, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that's... No, no offense to any Glee fans out there. Uh, so the, the high point of the movie, right. but even I, even still, it felt flat. Even before that, the singing started in that scene, um, I just had this sense of... Badly singing. Huh? When uh, in the the conversation scene, which is so awkwardly directed, a bunch of people are standing around, uh, sitting at a table, and one person is um, standing, and and as they recite lines to each other, and I I think it's David Bordwell, the film historian and film theorist, who spoke about bad directors delivering dialogue as stand and deliver, and it is exactly that. It's so static in these big widescreen frames that, that, that John McPhail and his cinematographer have no idea what to do with. Um, a bunch of people just stand around and say words at each other. Exposition. And just dropping exposition. big exposition Here, my, my dad, My parents are in Mexico. Blah, 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 blah. Oh. Exposition. And then suddenly they get up and start twirling around and dancing, and this twirly, twirly moustached uh, villain. Oh, no, this, this, this is the worst thing about the film. Walks in and says, "Oh, I hate them because they are teenagers and they are happy." I, yeah. So it's, the villain plot is appalling. But this is the worst thing. The, the, the villain. It's it was a role that required such scenery chewing to really just encompass the scene. And he's not. He wasn't a great. He's performer, not a good actor. And they couldn't stage it well to make him appear grandiose or larger than life, which is what it really needed. So he's just this random person with a, non, a completely nonsensical plot. He just hates people because he's the villain and because they're happy, and he's not as happy or. So, them. but he doesn't just hate people to the level that he's Scrooge. Like he hates people to the level that he'll trap them in a school so that zombies can kill them. Like, but can can we also talk about the tonal shift in this yes, movie? Yes, no, no, no. oh wow, no absolutely. Um, okay, this movie starts as a farce. You know, it, it's going for a kind of. I guess the model is Shaun of the Dead. It starts out oh, silly the and jump funny. Cuts it just yeah, they from they Shaun just of the Dead. steal some jump cuts, start uh, editing from Shaun of the Dead, which clash with the lack of visual imagination and style that the rest of the film has. At least in Shaun of the Dead, they fit with the general kineticism that was going on through the whole film. But it starts. The, the model is definitely that starting as a farce and then getting gradually into you know despair and horror territory. But the direction is always at odds with the script. There's a scene early on where suddenly, which uh, marking the transition to it's getting serious now, where a character says at the end of a big fight in a bowling alley, this isn't fun anymore. But the way that that whole scene was was shot is dubstep music playing, 
and silliness of limbs getting thrown apart. You know, so the direction is saying, "Man, this is fun. Enjoy the zombie slaughter." But the script is saying things are getting serious. And then shortly after that, oh, they no, start is, singing a song, "The Christmas Carol." About, yeah, about how they oh, need no. human connection. And this is a movie that had like fart jokes and people falling over. You know, the the lamest, lowest common denominator slapstick. Not five or ten minutes ago, and then suddenly it's it's a it's this earnest. You forgot in the Christmas. It looks Carol, like a Christmas ad. The way the, that it's it staged, like it's so ridiculous. Oh no, that's later in the film. Oh, that was and it was so sincere. There's another. I, I'm talking about the "I Need a Human Voice" yeah, no, song. I, I remember. But later on, there's another really ill-advised moment where the night before Christmas starts getting uh, read out, and, and in the middle of a zombie escape scene shot in slow motion. But uh, and it just feels like. Uh, it's so pointless, it, and, and it's, so it's, and it's, because it's, it, you don't just hear a little bit of a night before Christmas, you hear. All of it, so it makes you think about the words of the poem, and they don't relate to what's on screen at all. And it feel it's slowed down; it becomes so mellow. It feels like you're supposed to be sitting here watching this mug pot chocolate, whereas a few minutes before, it sounds it's trying to go for you know crazy midnight viewing session. And it's multiple different films, and then it beca- tries to go in this semi-romantic subplot, which oh, is man. all about uh, which is uh, it comes into drama territory. It's just all over the place. There's no consistency at all. I need to say one thing about that. Um, well, about both of those points. First, the nightmare before... Sorry, nightmare before Christmas. This movie was my goddamn nightmare before Christmas. <laughs> Don't make this now, a Christmas movie. Yeah, um, there was a scene... Yeah, in that uh, the night before Christmas scene, when it goes into ultra slow motion, it cl- you, you expect that when directors suddenly slow down the film, it's going to be at a really striking moment. But the shot when the slow motion kicks in, and the, the the moment it kicks in, I should say, is just so awkward. Like it's this badly framed shot with no focal point of interest and characters looking every which way or the other. And that just speaks to the general incompetence of the visual style of this film. It's shot in really wide frames, usually too wide, so that there's no the focal point of the of the film is too distanced from you. Um, a lot of the time, the compositions are just really sloppy. And um, on top of that, it looks cheap. This And I, that's different from looking low budget. They're going for a slick look that requires way more resources than they have. So it just ends up looking shoddy. They it, it, This could have looked good with the budget it had if they'd leaned into the low budget, uh, gritty aesthetics yeah. a bit more. Um, if, if you want an example of how this is done well, the Riverdale episode where they staged the musical of Carrie... That is quite interesting because it's not a ridiculous budget, but they're going for a bit of a lo-fi aesthetic, but they get the balance quite well. This film did not. The the other problem that I had with the movie was this kind of inversion to the, the character tropes that it's trying to invert about the the you know dickhead boyfriend or the, the best friend and this kind of uh, other character kind of uh, roles that these characters are playing and how they're inverted and what they end up, the, the, you know, the, the dad and the parents and how the parents are used and essentially... Uh, what purpose they seem to serve in these stereotypical scenarios and how this film is trying to cleverly invert and subvert them by being saying, ha-ha, you expected this to happen, but, but, but this doesn't happen in this you, character. But you don't care no. when the inversions come because none of the characters are developed at all. The film is called Anna and the Apocalypse, but I can't tell you really anything about Anna. Uh, no, she misses her dad? She misses That's her dad. About it. She's a, a teenager in... Somewhere in Wales. Uh, That's about it. Yeah. She she had a romantic relationship with someone, a character in the film before. Who is a complete dickhead. And the movie goes from presenting him as the biggest dickhead ever and the the worst dance scene of the movie. 
the this on and on and on lack of choreography musical scene where he sings about being great at killing zombies while attacking teenage girls. Um, yeah, he, he, he suddenly wants you to care about this character because he has a tragic backstory at the end. It's, it's such a lazy approach to writing. And all, on the subject of the songs, all of them are awful. All of them go on for too long. And all of the choreography... And I'm, 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 they're monotonous. They're all extremely they're all monotonous, similar, similar. Not only in the, in the tone of the songs and, in the, you know, and the similarity between them, but also in the way they're staged, where the same shots that you see at the beginning of a sequence will get recycled on and on and on because there's a lack of choreography for three and a half minutes. Right, last point of this film, I think this can sound very harsh in that we're saying, hey, you can look at this and say, hey, it's a zombie Christmas movie set around Christmas. But you know what? Films can aspire and should aspire to be better films. And there are many examples of Christmas films that can be just as schlocky, but Shaun are much of the more better stage and can be Shaun a lot more fun and a better example of Christmas movies you should go out and seek over this one. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and this movie start, you know, ends in a dreary, serious way. For all of the uh, defense that I'm sure people would put up of, oh, it's not meant to be, you know, serious. It's a silly Christmas zombie movie. Yeah, but we, no, it gets are, really serious. We have no context for the outside world. The entire thing is encapsulated within this one town. There's no context for anything that goes on. Anyways, this located to the one town. It's located to the entire there's world. Weird, there's references we to know. Mexico, but uh, yeah, there's, we've got no idea. Yeah, if but no, no, no references to any world. The world isn't isn't interesting. Okay, it's not. It's not. It's not interesting. Well, it's not an interesting movie. That is in the Anna in the Apocalypse. It is in cinemas in limited release tomorrow. Um, so that is uh, Widows is in release now. Do you in next week because we're having a bit of a different episode. We are going. We're getting back into TARDIS and we are going back in time to nineteen December fifth, nineteen seventy eight to review we'll be, some of the biggest films. Yeah, in we'll be talking about it, some of the some of our favorites of the year. Halloween just got released. New Halloween oh, sounds sounds familiar. Um, Animal House, Superman, uh, DC, the new, the new thing in comic book movies, and Days of Heaven and Deer Hunter just came out. Yeah, Mike, Michael Cimino. So yeah, I think that's going to be shooting for Best Picture, probably. It seems that way. He's he's really come a long way since uh, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. <laughs> so this has been Clint Falkenstein, Chris Evans of Verat Nehru. Um, subscribe. So we have, we're on the podcast. Subscribe on iTunes subscribe. and subscribe on Spotify. Because we're on Spotify now. Every subscribe. episode. Yeah, young people. Subscribe. Subscribe and tune in for our TARDIS episode, nineteen seventy eight, next week, and let us know what you want us to fight about. Have a wonderful night. Stay tuned for the Sonic Assassin and enjoy movies. Good night.